Welcome to Beyond the Crucible. I'm Warwick Fairfax, the founder of Beyond the Crucible. In 2019, he made me famous on a pornography website overnight, and I was asked for my autograph from a rape video. That was the lowest and most powerful moment of my life. He had included all of my social media and any personal information he could find on me so that people could follow me and figure out who I was and chase me. And if he couldn't stalk me, they certainly could. And I finally decided that if people are going to be finding me anyway, they're going to find out why. And that was when I started to fight back. The horrors our guest this week, Amanda Blackwood, endured almost from birth are hard to hear. Decades of physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. But as you heard at the end of that clip, heartache was not the end of her story. Healing was. Hi, I'm Gary Schneeberger, co-host of the show. Warwick's interview with Blackwood, by necessity, covers the trauma she experienced being sex trafficked on more than one occasion. But make no mistake about it, Amanda Blackwood may have been victimized, but she has emerged as anything but a victim. She fought for her freedom from the demons of her past, assisted by therapy and her faith, to emerge as an author, artist, and public speaker who offers hope to women who've been wounded by the same devastating crucibles. The first time I got up on a stage, I had a speaking voice like a mouse, she says. But I found there was a lion in my lungs. Well, Amanda, it is a privilege to have you. As I was just reading about your story, it's heartbreaking. It's uh, it's hard to know how to describe, but yet there's also hope with, I love the paintings that you do, which we'll talk about, and the model mentoring you you do, and your podcasts, and your books, and how you you know speak to groups about trafficking. There's a lot of hope, uh, but there's also darkness and, and sorrow. It's sort of, it's a mix. So it's this is not an easy subject. Obviously, it never is, but this certainly is challenging. So I kind of want to start at the beginning. We often talk about the backstory and sometimes you say, so tell us about life before the crucible, but it feels like there was no life before the crucible. You were born into a crucible, which makes it just more heartbreakingly sad. So that being said, just not an easy question, I realize, but tell us a bit about your growing up. What was life like for a young Amanda? I mean, I've asked this question often. It's just, it's a question I almost don't want to ask, but um, we got to start somewhere. So tell us about what life was like for a young Amanda. Life was very tumultuous. When I was a kid growing up, my father was in the military and I was actually born in Germany. We left Germany when I was only two and a half, so I don't remember a whole lot about it. But when I was four is when my earliest memories really began. My father was physically abusive. My mother was mentally and emotionally abusive. And the first person who ever molested me when I was four was my big brother. He was only three and a half years older than me. So looking back now, I can say that I understand that it wasn't his fault. And there's no way he should have known the things that he knew that something had to have happened to him and he was trying to work it out in his mind. But as a four-year-old, I couldn't figure that part out. I had no idea what that meant. I just knew that all of a sudden I didn't like my big brother anymore. And up until then, he was my best friend. He was my only friend. It was him and me against the whole world with everything else that was going on. 
So I started acting out, of course, as all kids would after something like that. My mom took us into the doctor's because she heard about this new miracle drug. This was 1984. And all the parents were getting their kids diagnosed with uh, ADHD or attention deficit disorder. And she wanted to see if we had it too, so that she could get this miracle drug for her kids. And when she took us in, the doctor said that my brother, of course, had ADHD, but that I was fine. There was nothing wrong with me. But she didn't believe the doctors. So she started breaking the medication in half and giving it to me. This went on for about a year. After I built up this dependency on this drug and had been basically a zombie, she took me back into the doctor after taking me off of the medication for a couple of days. So, of course, I would be pinging off the walls. When they saw my uh, withdrawal symptoms, they mistook them for being hyperactive and they put me on my own dose of Ritalin. I was on that until I started running away from home later on when I was a teenager. But because of this early setup... I, I continued acting out in smaller ways, perhaps. And the teachers were constantly getting on to me about talking too much in class, about di being disruptive, about not paying attention. These are common symptoms for somebody that's gone through some kind of a, a early sexual abuse or abuse of any kind. When this was happening, my mom kept on telling me that, you know, if something keeps happening to you, you're the common denominator. You're the one that has the problem and you need to fix yourself. I took that to heart. I believed that everything that was happening was absolutely my fault. So when I was molested again at 12 by a stranger in a swimming pool, again at 13 from an uncle by marriage, again at 15 by a stranger in a video store rental parking lot, Again, at 16 by somebody that I knew that time, and I was raped at 17 by somebody I thought was my best friend. All of these things kept on adding up, and I kept on thinking to myself, I'm the common denominator. I'm the one at fault. This is all my fault. This is my problem. I'm the only one that can fix this because clearly nobody else is going to help me. At 15, I started running away, and that's when I took myself off the Ritalin. I kept on getting dragged back home by the police every opportunity that they had. When I was dragged back, I would get into, of course, more trouble. I'd be grounded. I'd have things taken away from me. It got to where eventually I had a mattress on the floor, no sheets, no blankets. I had no bookshelf, no books. I had no privileges anywhere in the house. The bedroom door was taken off. I no longer had any kind of privacy. So, of course, you know, what's a kid to do? I started running away even more. But when I was taking myself off the medication, I was going through, again, these drug withdrawals. I'd been on this drug for 11 years at that point, and they didn't understand what was wrong with me. So my parents went into a psychiatrist and prepped the psychiatrist by sitting down with her for an entire afternoon and telling her all about the bad things that I'd been doing, including a bunch of stuff that they made up. And when they took me in to come see the psychiatrist, she absolutely had it in her head that she already knew everything about me that she needed to know. And she tried to put me on Klonopin and Paxil and Prozac and psychotropic medications to help with depression and anxiety disorders, which I didn't have. I had a drug to withdraw. But she also did something that set me up for a long, long string of failures in my life. Kind of like my mother telling me that I was the common denominator. This woman told me that if I wanted to have a positive relationship with my father or indeed with any man at all, that it was up to me. Men are not wired to reach out to women to make that kind of a personal connection. And that if I wanted to have a positive relationship with any man, 
at any point in life, I needed to be the one to make the effort. I needed to like what they liked. I needed to do what they liked to do. On one hand, it was really helpful because it did help me get into um, old cars because my dad was really into old cars. I loved going to the car shows and hanging out with him and doing this stuff. But it also set me up to not really know who I was or what I wanted. I just wanted whatever the person next to me wanted. By the time I left home when I was 18, I mean, I had turned 17 in a foster home. I had this long string of just one disaster after another. By the time I left home at 18, my dad gave me a ride to the airport. I was leaving the state. I couldn't wait to get out of there and go as far away as I possibly could, which that was from northern Utah down to Arizona. And on the way to the airport, we stopped off for breakfast at a Cracker Barrel. He told me, your mom and I were talking last night. She said she gives you six months before you come crawling back to us. I said, I give you three. And I knew right then I would not ask them for help. No matter what came my way, no matter what happened, I didn't care. I'd rather die in a gutter than ever go back to them for help. And that was my childhood. And it felt like as bad as your upbringing was, sometimes you think, oh, they can't be worse. But it felt like there was worse, as bad as it was. And so just talk about... I don't know, there's probably several beats to your story. I think you left at about uh, 18 and you had a, you know, abusive, I don't know what, not even a relationship, but I guess, is that when you were like first felt trafficked at 19? Talk a bit about at least some of the beats of that story, because that was, felt like one of the first beats post leaving home where it felt like it got worse. Everything got worse in my life for a very long time. Uh, When I was 18, I got involved in a relationship that turned out to be physically abusive. And I wasn't going to stand around for that. I decided early on that I've already had enough of this. I'm not going to put up with this again. So as soon as that happened, I was homeless, basically. I made friends and I slept on their couches and I bounced from one place to another for a long time. And I did get involved with a man that at the time I did not realize he had ties to organized crime and was a prolific drug dealer in the area. He didn't look like it. He didn't act like it. I had no idea. But he became my boyfriend. He gave me all the things that I was missing in life. He gave me the attention that I was looking for. And he gave me a roof over my head that seemed somewhat stable. He was more than twice my age. So I was 18. He was in his late 30s. And his best friend was having a birthday party in Las Vegas, Nevada. And his buddy came over and said, hey, I want to invite you guys to come out to my birthday party. It would just be us, but come on out to Vegas and we'll go and have a good party and go all hang out together. And my boyfriend at the time told him, well, I can't go because I've, I've got work I need to do, but she can go. And Amanda, how would you like an all expenses paid trip to Las Vegas? I'd been through Vegas before. I had ridden the roller coaster at the top of the New York, New York Uh, casino. I thought it was a lot of fun. They have a whole huge amusement area just for people that are not quite old enough to go gambling. I wanted to go and experience that again. We were going to be in a hotel that wasn't far from there. It'd be really easy to get over there. I was excited. And the guy had my ID card so that he could get me on and off the flight from Arizona to Vegas. When we got to Vegas, we checked in at the front desk and the front desk was paid in cash to not ask questions. We were taken up to the room, or I was taken up to the room, 
And I was told, I'm not going to give you a room key. If you leave, you can't get back in and you're on your own. You can order room service once a day. Make sure you order enough to get you by for the whole day. The front desk was told that when they dropped off the room service, they would drop it off at the front door and leave before I retrieved it because there was supposed to be no interaction between us. I knew that if I left that room, I would probably end up going and talking to a police officer and telling them what had happened. But I was over the age of 18 and nothing had ever been done before I was 18. So what were they going to do? You know, looking back, I realize now that they probably wouldn't have done anything. They would have seen it as somebody who made poor life decisions. So I didn't. And for 52 hours, I stayed in this hotel room. This man would go downstairs and gamble. He'd come up and snack off of whatever it was that I'd ordered from room service. He would rape me. He would assault me. He'd maybe fall asleep for a couple of hours. And then the cycle would start again. And for 52 hours, I stayed in that room. And he did things to me that I'd never experienced before or since. And at the end of the 52 hours, we went back to Arizona and the whole time in that room, I kept telling myself one of the worst things I could have told myself. I've been through worse. I can get through this too. Because it was a lie. I'd never been through anything that bad at that point. And we made it all the way back to Arizona. I gathered what few belongings I could. And I went and stayed with a friend of mine. Stayed on their couch until I could find a way to get out of the state. And I went on the run. Now, a lot of people don't think that this is necessarily trafficking. This is maybe a swinger situation. This is maybe some domestic violence. But human trafficking, as defined here in the United States by the Department of Homeland Security, is the use of force, fraud, or coercion to obtain commercial sex acts or labor from another person. So this was a commercial sex act I had no interest in doing. I was forced, frauded, and coerced into doing these things. So when I went on the run, I ended up in Florida, which is where I was trafficked the second time. When I went to Florida, it was because I had fallen out of a hayloft and it had injured my knee and needed knee surgery. The plan was I was going to go down to Florida and stay with my dad's mom. I'd never really gotten too much of a chance to, to get to know her. With my dad being military, we moved around so much. I wasn't really around extended family at all. I was going to stay with her long enough to get the knee surgery and recover. And then I already had a new job lined up, a new life, an apartment. I had everything lined up. My life was going to be set. And I got all the way down there and it was about 1030 at night. I called them from a payphone in the Daytona Beach bus station. My dad's stepfather answered the phone and said, we're not coming to get you. You're on your own. Good luck. And hung up the phone. I didn't really know much about the area. I had maybe $5 to my name. I was broke, scared, alone. I had no idea what to do. And I just sat down on this grassy hill nearby and I hugged my eyes, hugged my knees and I cried my eyes out. And a young couple came and got off the bus. They had just returned from New York and they came and found me and sat down beside me and asked me what was wrong. And they made me feel seen. They made me feel like somebody genuinely cared about me. I had no idea who these people were. He was 22. She looked like she was 18. It turned out she was only 15. But these two were a couple, and they said they had a place where I could stay until I could get on my feet. But what they really meant was they had a place where I could stay until they could find the highest bidder. Because they sold me for $90 to a guy named Esteban. My entire life was worth $90. 
I was locked up in this small room for 23 and a half hours with no food, no water, no bathroom facilities of any kind, and the voices of other people, trapped in rooms similar to the one I was in, all up and down this hall, screaming for help. But I was a child of the 80s, and I grew up watching MacGyver, and I absolutely love Richard Dean Anderson, and I say it all the time, the guy has to know by now. (laughs) If he has listened to any podcast anywhere, he knows that I love him. (laughs) (laughs) And I used what I had learned from watching him and watching that show to get myself out of this situation. And the first person that I saw when I got out of this room was a police officer. But this guy was right behind me. He was chasing me. He was following me. And she looked at me like I was completely insane, this police officer. She had no idea what I was talking about. I'm sure my mouth was going 90 to nothing. I don't even know if I was comprehensible. No clue. But she looked at me like I was nuts. But then she saw this this guy that was after me. She saw him do an illegal U-turn in his car. And she swung around and went after him. And when she did that, I went back to where I had been staying. I grabbed what few things I could carry again and chose to be homeless again, rather than to put myself back in that situation one more time. Eventually, from there, I made my way all the way out to California. It was as far as I could get from Florida without either freezing my butt off or having a passport. So I did what I had to do. I just got out of Dodge. And for a little while, it looked like my life was going to get better. I guess it makes you think, well, what happened then? Because it sounds like it it didn't get better. Yeah, there was... There were moments when it did. So when I got out to California, I was 23, 24. This was... About 2004, this is when internet dating really became a thing. And of course, I wanted to try it out because I was still lonely and still looking for some kind of a relationship. And I met this guy online and he lived so far away that we knew that nothing was ever going to come of it. But I had somebody that I could talk to and he had a very respectable job in his community. I knew that I could trust this person. And during the time that he and I were talking and really getting to know each other and hanging out on Skype back when that was the big thing, we would, I would have dinner when he was having breakfast or the other way around. I don't remember anymore, but we, we spent a lot of time together. I was on Alias and Will and Grace. I modeled for Harley Davidson. I did a lot of really cool stuff, but I was still trying to put my sense of self-value into the hands of other people. I finally left Hollywood. I was offered a a reoccurring role on the final season of Will and Grace, and I walked away. I didn't want to be in that world anymore. That wasn't my world. That wasn't where I belonged. And I instead got into the world of mall security. I became a mall cop. (laughs) Within within five months, I had busted open a major embezzlement ring within the mall security. I got the main guy fired and I took over. So within five months, I went from being the new person there to being the head of of public safety and security for that property and several others there in Los Angeles. I got an $11,000 a year raise. I had my own apartment for the first time. I had a cat. I had a car that I paid off pretty much instantly. It was the first time I'd ever had anything like this. I had stability. I mean, still working with a high school equivalency and no college education, I felt like I was really making it in the world. But a period of seven years had gone by. 
And in those seven years, I'd gotten to know this man who lived so far away. I got to know him really well. He came to visit me, and I went to go and visit him. And after seven years, he asked me to get a fiancé visa and move to Scotland to go and be with him. It took him seven years to get me there. It took him seven days to start trafficking me. I was 31 years old. This will be a time I'm going to jump in, and I've never done this, Amanda, on this show, because I want listeners and viewers to understand that they've heard some pretty shocking, terrible, traumatic things. But I want them to know, because you and I have talked and I know a little bit about your story, absolutely you have been victimized. But folks, keep listening and watching because Amanda Blackwood is not a victim. Don't think this ends uh, on a down note. Ride this out because the cavalry is coming. Hope is coming. Um, breakthrough is coming and you don't want to miss it. So I just want to, you know, I don't want people to be getting down here. Um, I want people to, to be plugging in because we're about to turn soon to a truly remarkable, joyous story. Sorry, Warwick, I just felt the need to drop that in there. <laughs> no, well, well done. So just hearing a bit about your story when you were 31 and in Scotland, that you've had some bad experiences, but my gosh, it felt like, I don't know, that was maybe the apex. It was pretty close to, so talk about that time because it felt like, how could things get any worse? It felt like it got so much worse. So talk about that time in Scotland. So right off the bat, as soon as the abuse started, I tried to find some way out of there. Uh, he had my debit card, my passport and all that stuff within an hour of me landing there in Scotland. He said that he was going to put them all in his lockbox and keep them safe. And I had to trust that he knew his area and the crime rates and everything better than I would. So of course I handed these things over. I'd known him for seven years. But when the abuse started, I immediately understood why he wanted me to hand all of these things over. So he would have control over me. Within a couple of days of the abuse starting, I formulated a plan. I knew how I was going to get out of there. And I got him very drunk one night when the abuse was happening. I had spent some time as a waitress and I knew the value of not letting somebody see the bottom of their coffee cup. <laughs> and I did that with his whiskey cup. <laughs> so he had a lot of whiskey. And at the end of the night, I convinced him, hey, you know, if you give me back my passport and my debit card, I could go to the bank tomorrow and go get all my money out of the bank and we could put that money into your account right. so that we can spend it. Because otherwise it's just going to sit there and it'll waste away. <laughs> and he bought it. He gave me back my, my identity. And instead, the very next day, the first thing I did was jump on a computer. And the first flight out of there was $12,000. I couldn't afford that. I had a little over $2,000 in my name, but I would have spent twelve dollars if I had twelve. The next flight out was too expensive. The next day after that was too expensive. I would have to wait five days for a flight that I could afford. So I bought the flight, and I did the same thing that I did in Arizona. And I told myself... I've been through worse. I can get through this too. And again, it was a lie. What I went through in the next few days were so severe that I ended up with a kidney infection that landed me in the hospital when the flight took off and it was a non-refundable flight. I lost everything. I had maybe $11 left in that account that would have been enough to get me to a train to be able to get me to the airport. It was gone. The flight was gone and I wasn't. 
So I decided then that my way out was going to be to take my own life. I was 31. Nobody had ever really truly cared about me or loved me. And I had no idea what I was going to do. And I researched and what's the best way to do this. And I put together a plan. And when I was nine, I used to sneak out of my house on Sundays and go to church. You know, when all the other kids were fighting and not wanting to go to church, I was sitting in the front row. (laughs) And I loved church. I loved going. I loved hearing these messages. And I remember the pastor inviting me on the first time I was ever there. Hey, you can go to kids service if you want to. No, don't put me in a room full of kids. I didn't trust kids. I had been already so bullied. I didn't trust kids. And I told the pastor, I said, I want to sit here. Will you please just let me sit here? And he said, as long as you never disrupt us, I'll let you sit anywhere you want to. I was sitting in that front row with his wife every day every Sunday for months. And when I, my parents found out, I got in a lot of trouble. And they said it wasn't because I was going to church, but because I was going to the wrong church. I was going to a non-denominational church, and they wanted me to go to a Methodist because they were Methodist, and they didn't want me getting the wrong idea, whatever that meant. But I didn't care. I kept going back no matter what my punishment was. And that day, I felt the calling to go to church. And I went to a church that was built in, I believe, the 15 or 1600s. And I sat down on the steps of this church for a while, and I kept on saying in my mind, God, please send somebody just to see me. Send somebody to ask me if I'm okay, and nobody showed up. So I sat down next to a headstone where everything except for the the date on it had completely worn away, and the date on it was 1776. And for people who aren't in the United States, that doesn't sound that significant, but that's when the U.S. declared independence from England. That's what I was trying to do. I was an American trying to get out of the UK. So I sat down next to that headstone and I had a full conversation with whoever that was underneath. And that was my best friend. And it was the best friend I'd had for months. They didn't respond and they still didn't see me. And I could see people walking by on the street and they would look over and see that I was obviously having a bad day. I had tears streaming down my face, but they would not want to see me. They would turn the other way, and I could see it on their face. It's not my problem. That's somebody else's problem. That's not my problem. Eventually, I made my way to the train station. Back then, I was a smoker, and my plan was I was going to have my one last cigarette and then walk along the tracks until I heard the train coming and step in front of the train. Most women, especially, when they want to end their own lives, they do it in a way that would preserve the body to be for an elegant funeral. I didn't care about that. I didn't want anybody to know where I was or what had ever happened to me. I wanted him to be left wondering. And I wanted my parents to think that I had just disappeared and lived a long and happy life. I wanted to be unrecognizable. And I sat there with my cigarette thinking about all of this. And a man walked out onto the platform and he asked me for a light and I handed him my lighter and I said, you, you can keep it. I, I don't need it anymore. And I wanted him to ask me why. But he didn't ask. He lit a cigarette and he handed it back to me and says, I, I won't need it either. And that was it. And I knew I couldn't make this total stranger care. Huh. And a little boy walked out onto the platform and walked up to that man and he took this man's hand. 
And that little boy turned and looked at me. But he didn't just look at me. He saw me. He saw me as a person. You know, we have these moments in life where we're in a bad mood or something's upset us and we've got a child nearby and we try to cheer up our faces so that we don't get the kid feeling down in the dumps and get the kid to cry. It didn't work. That kid looked right through me. And it took me about 20 seconds to realize that I was not running down the tracks toward the train, but running back toward my present. And I was thanking God because he sent that little boy to see me because I knew in that moment I could not do to that child what had been done to me when I was about that same age. I could not scar that child for the rest of his life. I could not take that kid's innocence and throw it away like it was nothing. And I finally formulated the plan on how to get out of there. After a couple of weeks of building up this routine of making him believe that I would do anything for him, and that I was so madly in love with him that nothing would faze me, I did everything that I didn't want to do, and I did it all with a smile on my face. I made him believe that I was so completely devoted to him. And we finally sat down in June and had a conversation, and I told him, he said, you know, I came out here on a six-month fiancé visa, and the day that we had already picked out to get married has come and gone, and we're not married. And if I overstay my visa, I could get kicked out of the UK and never be allowed back according to UK law. And you, you could lose your job as a police officer, and we wouldn't want that, would we? But if you send me back now, I could go back there for six months and come back. And if we did that, I would be back in time for Christmas and it would be our first Christmas together. And wouldn't it be wonderful? Within two hours, he bought a round trip flight for me to leave. I hit the States and I took off running and he hunted me relentlessly. So you came back to the US and I felt like life started to, well, maybe it was a few more years, I think, before life really started to turn around. So Just talk, I mean, I'd love to hear the turnaround story. Any other key moments before the turnaround or you want to talk about? There are. are, There's a couple. So a lot of people think that uh, leaving the situation is enough to kind of turn things around for them. But that's actually just like in domestic violence cases, that is the most dangerous point in a survivor's life. You know, You've already been treated as an object. This person believes that they own you. They're going to do whatever they can to get their possession back. And he came looking for me. I saw him through the peephole one day banging on the neighbor's door. He had my address off by one number. He had taken a bunch of photos and videos of me while I was being trafficked. And every time I got a job, he would send this to the boss and say, I wouldn't want something like this working for me, would you? I lost jobs. He started doing this to friends. I lost friends. Everywhere I went, he was finding a way to try to alienate me. I tried to change my hair color. I had really short hair at the time. I tried to grow my hair out. I did whatever I could to kind of change my appearance so that he would stop following me. I shut down all my social media. I went into hiding for a while. Finally, I was like, you know, I'm sick of hiding. I'm sick of not being able to be me. But I was so alienated that finally... I left Los Angeles, loaded up a U-Haul with my cats. I had more than one at that point. And I hit the road. I drove to Colorado and I started my life over. And I was thinking, 
okay, everything's going to be fine. I left it all behind. But unless you deal with something like this, it's never going to be left behind. No, you're not, you're not just going to magically set it down and walk away from it. It's going to follow you. And in 2019, he made me famous on a pornography website overnight, and I was asked for my autograph from a rape video. That was the lowest and most powerful moment of my life. He had included all of my social media and any personal information he could find on me so that people could follow me and figure out who I was and chase me. And if he couldn't stalk me, they certainly could. And I finally decided that if people are going to be finding me anyway, they're going to find out why. And that was when I started to fight back. So talk about how you fought back and how you turned the corner I think it, at one point, I believe um, you talk about maybe part of that was, was getting fired, you know, maybe part of his vendetta thing with videos and all that. But I think you mentioned that getting fired was a key moment in your life. So just talk about the link between that and kind of somehow turning the corner and really taking hold of your life, if you will, and moving forward. So when I found out that I was made famous on the pornography website, I decided that that was when I'm going to start getting the help that I had obviously desperately needed. And of course, I didn't trust therapists right off the bat. So I reached out to an anti-trafficking organization. The first group set me up with pro bono legal services to fight back against the pornography stuff. So they were reaching out to the pornography websites and having them pull the stuff down. But every time one went down, two more went up somewhere else. And I was fighting this uphill battle. So finally, I broke down and I told this other anti-trafficking group, I think I need to see somebody. I think I need to talk to somebody about this. So they paired me up with a therapist, even though I didn't want to go because of what happened when I was 15. And that first therapist was not great and pretty new. And I traumatized her so much that she left the industry. Mm. And right off the bat, I went back to my mother saying, if there's a problem, you're the problem. And I thought it was my fault that this woman left the industry. The whole reason that I had been paired with her in the first place was because people knew that I had massive amounts of baggage that I needed to unload. And I can't say that it was necessarily my fault that she didn't know how to handle that. She took on the case and she stuck with it as long as she did, knowing that she was reaching her own breaking point. I had to let go of that blame. So when that fell apart, they paired me up with another one. And this other therapist, I will sing her praises for the rest of my life. Uh, she's Christian and she's no nonsense. She's tough as nails. I absolutely love this woman. But when I first went into a conversation with her, the first thing out of my mouth was, first of all, do not come at me with any kind of prescription medication. Been there, done that. I'm not looking for a Band-Aid. I'm looking for a shovel. And do not treat me like I am some fragile porcelain doll if I was going to break, I'd have done it already. I got work to do, and I'm here to get it done. Within about a year and a half of starting therapy, I went through everything that you could possibly imagine. I got through all of the speed bumps that I, had been slowing me down for so many years. I'd done so much studying on my own. And that was when I sat down to write my book. And when I wrote my book, it wasn't because I was thinking, look, I'm going to put this out there in front of everybody's face. I was thinking, I need to get this out of my body. And writing was always so therapeutic for me. And I wrote my entire life story in a matter of 30 days. It's 300 pages long. 
And when I finished it, I had given all of that trauma a body separate from myself that I could set down on the shelf and walk away from. Which, what was the name of that there. book again? It's called Custom Justice. Right. I know you've written a number of books, and that talked about the, a lot of things, but you know the whole Scottish deal too. Yeah, so, that, so talk about that. So you wrote that book, and um, yeah, what was the impact of that for you? I, I loved the release. I wrote about things that I didn't think I'd ever be able to write about. And I didn't even have to write about the dirty, gory details. I was able to leave all that stuff out and still put enough of the instances into the book to release it, to let it go. It wasn't in the forefront of my mind anymore. Yeah, I, it felt amazing just to get it out of me. And I had decided that I was going to release it on my 10-year anniversary of Freedom from Scotland, which was on June 19th of 2021. That was when my book was officially published. And a month later is when I met the man that's now my husband. Wow. That must have been an interesting story. I mean, you know, feel free to not to talk in too much detail, but did you feel like you finally found, I don't say like a real man's, a man of character and heart? and love and compassion and gentleness, like what I view is not the macho man kind of image, but like a real man. Did you finally feel like I found one? I did. And you know, it's odd, but I met one before him too. And that's what really helped me to come along in a lot of the healing stuff. I started to meet people who had values and integrity and they, they were huge for being able to change everything about my life, these people were instrumental, you know, and these weren't romantic relationships necessarily. Mm. One person who was really an outstanding example of what a man should be in somebody's life was my best friend's husband. He loves her. He's devoted to her. He's kind and compassionate and patient. And oh, he's just, he's the best guy. And my best friend and I used to joke all the time, you know, someday I'll find my own Dave. And Colette <laughs> and I, we're actually going, going to go and we've got plans to go and hang out tomorrow, she, just she and I. And it's, it's so amazing when you start learning how to have these healthy boundaries, you start attracting good people in your life. And when I met my husband, he's a Christian. He's an audio engineer for the church that we go to. He is kind and compassionate, smart, wise, He's educated in so many ways. He's brilliant, funny, patient, kind. He's everything that God knew that I needed in life and that I couldn't deal with anything less than that. I took a note earlier in the stories that you were telling because a couple of the of the really terrible situations you were in, you were told you're on your own. And I love that you landed the plane on your story you're not alone, not just with your husband, but with friends, with meeting people of integrity, with having a church. To I mean, all of those things, all those times you were told you were on your own, you realized you're not on your own. You're living a life not on your own. What does that feel like? Can you, I mean, how are you different now from the, from the girl woman who thought she was on her own? I think always in the back of my mind, I, f I knew that I wasn't completely alone. 
You know, there's a lot of uh, scriptures and biblical references that talk about how we're not alone and God is always there with us. But there were a lot of times where I still felt completely alone. And I wasn't lonely for God. I was lonely for companionship. But when I moved out to Colorado, I lived in probably one of the worst neighborhoods. Uh, There were domestic violence cases and drug deals and stuff in my building pretty much daily. And I lived there for three and a half years, just me and my cats. And in that period of time, I stopped being lonely for companionship. I started doing more. I started exploring who I was and finding things that I wanted to do. And I would go out and do old gold mine tours here in Colorado and see the (laughs) Molly Brown Museum and do all of these things that nobody ever wanted to do with me. But I always wanted to do these things. I needed to figure out who I was and figure out what I wanted. And until I could do that, I had no idea who was going to fit where in my life, and if anybody would at all. Boy, that is profound. I mean, you did so much of the inner work as you were turning the corner. But I feel like, at least in my experience, part of the inner work is finding, well, what's God's purpose in all this? Why did I suffer all of this? There's got to be a reason. I think of um, uh, something you would know a lot about, uh, the story of Joseph. I think at the end of Genesis, it said, you know, he was sold into slavery uh, in Egypt. They said they meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Obviously, that's got to be a scripture that you've thought a lot about. You would have to. So, as you reflect on what you do, do you think about that? Well, maybe... If there's a force for evil out there and people of faith believe there is, maybe they felt like this would break me, destroy me, but God had a plan to use that. How do you see, from your perspective, how God used that to give you a mission of compassion to help others? He always meant me for something else. It was the bad will of man that did these things to me. It was never God's fault. But God can take anything and turn it into something. And that's what he did. And he does over and over and over again. And when I found out that I was made famous on the pornography website, when I first started speaking up and talking about it, I remember sitting down and and having that little small voice in the back of my head that said, it's time. It's time to speak up. It's time to tell your truth. It's time to tell people the real story. And I remember thinking, I'm scared. I, I don't want to do this. I'm terrified. But knowing that it was time and knowing that if something existed, he would give it a positive purpose too. No matter how bad things got for me, no matter how horrible my life seemed, he saved my life by sending a child to me in my darkest moment. And he made that sacrifice for me and so many others. I could sacrifice my own peace of mind for him. I, would have, I was scared, but nothing could prevent me from doing what it was that he set me out to do. I love something that you told me, Amanda, and I'm going to pull up my paper and read it because I want to get it right. When we talked before this interview, you said that when you started to get up and talk about what happened with you, what happened to you, the, the, the traumas that you endured, um, how you dealt with all that. You said, the first time up there, I had the voice of a mouse, but I found out 
I have a lion in my lungs. That is a line that summarizes uh, so much of your story, I think, that that lion, right? That lion's been set loose in the art that you're doing. You know, it's it's hanging in the homes of people who have similar experiences to what you've been through um, in the way that you you encourage people. I love this. Uh, we must stop comparing our experiences, our tragedies and traumas to someone else. That's called a trauma trophy, you <laughs> yes. say. I mean, that lion is putting a lot of hope out there into the people that you encounter. That voice is making a huge difference. I I imagine that has to feel so rewarding that you're now on this side of what you've been through and you're, when you looked for hope for so long and couldn't find it, now you're able to give hope to others. That's got to feel phenomenal. It does, but I also know that I can't take the credit for it because if it was up to me, I'd have been silent for the rest of my life. Um, (laughs) I was... I was told to do this. This is the whole reason that I was kept alive. This is my life's mission now. Mm. And I'll never regret it. But I know that I wouldn't have made this decision on my own. So as you think about your life's mission, the calling, I guess, from your perspective and, you know, I guess mine, uh, that God has called you to. I mean, you do painting, you write books, you have a podcast, you speak. How would you summarize what you feel God is calling you to? What's, you know, Amanda Black, which part of God's grand redemptive plan, if you will? I am here to lift up the voices of other survivors, not just survivors of trafficking, but survivors of any kind of trauma, and to show how others have been able to get through their own experiences, how they're able to have healthy, productive lives afterward, give hope to the people that are still trying to figure out how to navigate this now. I'm here to bring awareness. I'm here to tell the truth. you know. And that's kind of a, the basic of everything that I do is tell the truth. I was accused of lying so much as a kid. Oh, you're just making this up. You're just doing this for attention. I have a human trafficking myth versus truth video that has just taken off like wildfire in the last few months. You know, January here in the U.S. is National Human Trafficking Awareness Month. And in this video, it's just a slideshow, basically, and it shows what people think and what is the reality. Less than 2% of all victims of trafficking survive. Of the 2% that actually survived, a small, small percentage of them are willing to speak up. And it doesn't mean that you have to speak up. You have to do what I do to be able to get through it and to get to the other side and to have this happy, healthy, productive life. We all heal in our own ways. We all need different things to be able to get through it. The whole reason that I do what I do is to tell people that it's possible. Not that you have to do it the way that I've done it but that you can get there. There is hope on the other side. You are strong enough and asking for help is not a weakness. I would be remiss if I didn't, um, because you talked about the importance of truth. We've talked about faith. Uh, if I didn't refer to John eight thirty two about how the truth will set you free, the truth has indeed set you free. And that is a, uh, yeah. As I said earlier in the show, folks, this doesn't end sad. absolutely you cannot change the whole world but you can change the whole world for one person if you can reach that one person it makes your life worthwhile there is no love greater than someone who's willing to lay down his life for his fellow man 
what I do is not exactly rainbows and unicorns. This is dangerous work that I do. Speaking up and having public speaking engagements where I can easily be attacked if I, if somebody were so inclined. I'm not impossible to find physically. What I do is very dangerous. But I also know that I have been able to help other people. I've had three or four different people reach out to me recently to say that they were able to ask for the help because they heard me speak somewhere. I want more of that. I'm addicted to that now. That's my new addiction, not the, um, the, the love of the world outside of my home and my family. I'm addicted to knowing that I can make a difference. I guess maybe a final bit I'm curious about is, um, at least from my experience, you cannot move on until you've forgiven, forgiven yourself, forgiven others. And I got to say, we say this every single time, forgiving does not mean condoning. We say that a gazillion times because it did not, so it does not mean condoning, doesn't mean it's okay. But I often say you forgive because if you don't forgive, it's like drinking poison. It kills okay. you. You forgive because you're worth it. I mean, clearly you've been through all of this. This is probably not a new thought, but talk about in your own life. You must have found a way to forgive others. It's easy to be angry at yourself. How could you be angry at yourself? I should have known. I should have this. I should have that, right? It's not, it doesn't matter if it's rational, right? How did you manage to forgive in order to move on? Because for most people, they'd say, well, what you went through is truly unforgivable. It's impossible to forgive. How did you do that? Well, the first thing I had to do was realize that my mother was full of crap. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I needed to figure out what forgiveness was. You know, if you and I were standing in an elevator and you had your hands full of stuff and you accidentally elbowed me because you were about to drop something, you would say, oh, I'm sorry. And my first response would be, it's okay. That's a pardon. (laughs) That is not forgiveness. You're not forgiven. You're completely pardoned. This isn't an issue. Forgiveness is something that you have to hand out when somebody does something on purpose. And it's, for me, it was my way of saying, this has existed in my life long enough and it's not worth my time anymore. I don't want this to rule my life. So I'm forgiving this because it doesn't have power and control over me anymore. I will never forget For one thing, PTSD doesn't let you forget, Um, but (laughs) there's also this level of understanding that I know not to trust these people ever again, because I did make that repeated mistake as a kid. Now, I would trust these people over and over again. That uncle, when I was 13, that molested me, I still loved that uncle. I still adored him. I loved seeing him and hanging out with him. I felt weird about him after that, but I still made the mistake of the as a 13-year-old kid would, of thinking, it's okay, he won't do that again. They will. If you give them the opportunity, they will. You have to learn how to cut ties, but to let go of that anger. It is not our place to hold on to that anger. If it does, if you hold on to it forever, it just makes you more and more bitter. I didn't want to be bitter. I wanted to sit down on a back porch and look at the grass blades and think about how beautiful they were and to hear the birds singing and hear the buzz of the electrical lines. I know that sounds weird, but there was a night where I sat on the back porch petting a cat, listening to the buzz of the electrical lines in the study and thinking, 
how lucky I was to be alive that I could hear that sound, that crackle. And that crackle, those live wires were every bit as alive as I was. This is a good time for me to jump in and, and say what I say at this point in all the shows. Um, that sound you just heard, listeners, was the captain turning on the fasten seatbelt sign, indicating that we've begun our descent. We're not quite there yet. Warwick's got a question or two, uh, I'm sure, to ask. But I would be remiss, Amanda, if I did not give you the opportunity, after sharing so much about your story with listeners and viewers, to let them know how they can find you on the internet, how they can learn more about your story, maybe invite you to speak. Where can they go on the World Wide Web to find you? The easiest place for that is my website, which is growthfromdarkness.com, because that's what we do when we heal. We grow from that darkness. Mm. Growthfromdarkness.com, and I'm very active on Facebook, probably more active than I should be, and I'd write more than two books a year if I wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) I can identify with that. Warwick? (laughs) Uh, As always, the last question or questions are all yours. What would a message of hope be to somebody that maybe today does feel like it's the the darkest moment and if there is a pit, it's bottomless and it can only get worse, infinitely worse, better, never, certainly can get worse. What would a message of hope be for that person if today's that day? When I sat down with my therapist that day and I told her, don't give me prescription medication because I'm not looking for a Band-Aid, I'm looking for a shovel. It was not just because I wanted to get to the root of the problem. It was because I needed to dig out of a hole that somebody else had dug. You might feel like you're all the way in the bottom of this pit of despair and there's no way out. And sometimes the only way out is to dig a little deeper. But it is absolutely possible. And it's not a weakness to ask for help. That's why it's so difficult to do. This is a strength and you have to build up that muscle. If you're not sure how to do it, start small. Excuse me, but can you hand me that ink pen over there? Would you mind helping me to bring my groceries into the house? Start small. And when you're ready to start asking for more, you'll know. I have one final question, which is, I have a feeling you're somebody that's grateful for a lot. And you could say, what could Amanda like would be grateful for other than maybe being alive or surviving? But I have a feeling that you're full of gratitude. What, how would you summarize what you're grateful for? I, I think the only way that I can say it is a blank canvas. I am grateful for a blank canvas. Not only can I turn it into a book or a painting or whatever it is that I'm working on creating, but the blank canvas was my life. The blank canvas is what happened to me after I lost my job because they found out I was a survivor of human trafficking. They didn't want that kind of drama. I was able to move on with my life because I had this massive blank canvas set in front of me and I had no idea what was going where. You can take anything and turn it into whatever God wants it to be. You can turn it into something. You can take absolutely nothing and turn it into something beautiful. This is the life that I've lived. I would absolutely be stupid to not say that I am so grateful for that blank canvas that has become the beautiful life that I have now. Friends, I have been in the communications business long enough to know when the last word on a subject's been spoken, and our guest, Amanda Blackwood, just spoke it, and eloquently and and movingly, I would add. Um, So, friends, until the next time we are together, please remember 
we understand how difficult your crucible experiences are. All three of us up here have experienced crucibles. All three of us up here have talked to you about them at various times on this show. But we also know this, and Amanda's life is a, is a, is a shining example of this, that your worst day doesn't have to define you. And in fact, if you, if you get that shovel and you dig out of that hole and you learn the lessons that that crucible can teach you as you embark on your journey out of that hole, out of that pit, you can start a new chapter in your life that can lead you to, that often does lead you to, the greatest ending that you could imagine. And that ending is a life of significance. If you enjoyed this episode, learned something from it, we invite you to engage more deeply with those of us at Beyond the Crucible. Visit our website, beyondthecrucible.com, to explore a plethora of offerings to help you transform what's been broken into breakthrough. A great place to start? Our free online assessment, which will help you pinpoint where you are on your journey beyond your crucible and to chart a course forward. See you next week.